I was reading a... I was reading a psychology article this week, and they said, fundamentally, there are only four basic human emotions. And any feelings that we have beyond those four are just variations on these fundamental four. So we're going to put them here on the screen. I want to see what you think about these. Psychologists say that, in general, our baseline emotions are anger, fear, happiness, and sadness. Okay? Now, there are a couple of things that I notice when I hear that statistic. First is, if this is true, 75% of our emotions are negative emotions. Only one out of four is positive. Listen, that explains an awful lot of what I see online, okay? About 75% of every post, tweet, you know, hashtag whatever seems to be negative, and maybe that's founded in science if three quarters of our emotions are actually negative. Another thing that strikes me is if there are only four basic emotions, why are there 400 different emoji on my phone? I used to get so excited when they would release like new characters, you know, I was like, ooh, let me see what they're doing. Now it's just overwhelming. I spend like minute after minute scrolling through all these yellow faces, trying to figure out what's the perfect level of sad face for this text that I'm about to send. It's just too much. I can't deal with it, okay? Then I read another study that didn't invalidate the first one, but it took it a step further and it said, yeah, there may be four basic human emotions, but people are actually capable of experiencing 37,000 unique feelings. 37,000. That's a lot of feels, you guys. And if you have a teenage girl in your life, you have experienced all 37,000 of them in a single day, okay? Look, whether it's four basic feelings, whether it's 400 common ones or 40,000 possible ones, emotions are a huge part of our life. And that means that processing and managing our emotions is something that we all have to do. Now, if you're a Christian, then you believe that everything that's true about you is true for a reason, that God has given us our emotions for a particular reason and purpose. And if that's the case, then letting him, letting his word speak into our emotions lives is actually one of the very best things that we can do. That it will help us to become emotionally mature, emotionally grounded, emotionally healthy in a way that nothing else can. In fact, guys, I'm convinced of this. If we could understand our emotions correctly, not just like psychologically, not just relationally, but if we could understand our emotions from a spiritual perspective, we would discover that our feelings can actually fuel our faith. Our feelings can fuel our faith. Now, that may be different from what you've heard over time. You may have heard in the past, your feelings are bad. You can't trust them. They will always lead you astray. Don't get, you need to trust God's word. Never trust your feelings. And while yes, your feelings can lead you in bad directions. And yes, the word is our ultimate source, our ultimate guide and plumb line. The reality is we can't push away our emotions. We can't pretend they don't exist. God gave them to us for a purpose. He actually wants us to learn from them. Our feelings can fuel our faith. Now, this was certainly true of Jesus. Jesus was actually a pretty emotional guy. Scholars have done some digging throughout the Gospels, and they've discovered that Jesus expressed at least 39 unique emotions throughout the pages of the four Gospels. For example, he experienced compassion whenever he looked out on the city of Jerusalem and he said they were like scattered sheep with no, no shepherd. He said, how often I wanted to gather you under my wings the way a hen gathers her chicks. Jesus experienced compassion for lost people. He experienced anger 
over religious leaders that got in the way of people trying to come to God. There was a time he walked into the temple and he saw people and they had a, a money-changing temple and he grabbed the table and he flipped it up in front of everybody. He said, get out of here. You made my father's house into a den of thieves. Actually, we're going to cover that story in two weeks. You do not want to miss that Sunday. It's going to be a really good one. So he experienced anger. Jesus is overjoyed when he sends his disciples out on their first mission trip in the book of Luke. And then they come back and they're sharing their stories of success, how they help deliver people and God use them in powerful ways. The scripture says he's overjoyed. Jesus weeps in grief when his friend Lazarus dies. And just before the cross, he experiences loneliness as every one of his friends abandon him. So what I want to do in this series that we're calling emotions. It's not real creative. I know we're just trying to keep it basic, okay? Uh, what we want to do in this series called emotions is we want to not only talk about your emotions, which we're going to do. We're going to talk about mine, yours, the ones that we deal with on a regular basis. But more importantly, what I want to do is I want to look at four or five examples of incredibly emotionally charged moments in Jesus' ministry. Times where Jesus expressed a lot of emotion or the people around him had a lot of emotion. And what I want to do is I want to look at how he handled them. How did Jesus process and handle his own emotions? How did he deal with the emotions of the people that were around him? And I think by looking at how he handled them, we can learn some best practices for maybe how we can deal with our own feelings whether they're positive or negative. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this first story. It's in uh, Luke chapter number seven. It's a very short account, but man, is it powerful. There's so much depth and detail to it. Luke chapter number seven, we'll start reading here in verse number six. The scripture says this, soon afterward, and anytime you see that in the Bible, it's like after something, you're like, well, what came before? That's kind of important. You should know. And so this is soon after Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. So this is pretty early on in his ministry. Soon after that, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. Verse 12, a funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with Okay, I want to pause, kind of just make sure we're all on the same page here, set the scene. Jesus has just got done preaching his most famous sermon ever. He's traveling to a new area. He's going to continue to preach and work miracles. As he comes, he's got a large group of people that are following after him, waiting. What's he going to say? What's he going to do next? He comes upon this particular village, and as they're drawing close, he sees a large group of people that are coming outside. There's a funeral procession that's happening. Now, what we learn is that the person person who died is what the Bible calls a boy. Now, we don't know exactly how old he was. He might have been two. He might have been 12. We're not really totally sure about that, but we know that he had died, and we can kind of intuit that he must have died really recently, like within the last day or two, um, mostly because back in the first century, they didn't have the techniques that we have for kind of dealing with bodies, you know? It's like when there's a funeral today, somebody will call me and say, hey, can you do the, the memorial service for my mom? Yeah, totally. When's it going to be? Oh, two weeks from now, you know? We got to wait for everybody to fly in from all over the country and stuff like that. Back then, they had to get people in the ground quick, okay? And so this poor boy had died, and he had probably died in the day or two just prior. So this is a very fresh trauma. This is like real, immediate, and real. So the boy died, and then the other main character that we're kind of introduced to here is his mom. And we're told that he is the only son of a widow, and we don't know any other details about her. She never occurs in the scripture again. But 
We're told enough here to kind of get a picture of what this poor woman is going through. So first we read that at some point in the relatively recent past, within the last few years, her husband, her life partner has died. We don't know how or why, but she's lost her partner in life. Then, as if that wasn't bad enough, now the Bible says she loses her only son. Two major losses in a very, very short period of time. Can you imagine the emotions that must have been swirling through this poor lady? Like, it can be very easy when you're reading the Bible to just kind of read it as facts, and you're like, yeah, that would suck. I feel bad for her. You know, it's really too bad. No, don't do that. I want you to put yourself in her place for just a moment. Could you, could you just like say, man, how would I feel? My husband passed away. My partner's gone. How would I feel if I lost my only child? Like, Words don't even do justice to the depth and meaning of feeling that this poor woman must have been going through. She was certainly experiencing grief and sadness over the loss of her son, her only son. There's got to be the uh, loneliness that comes from losing her life partner and then the fear she must have been facing. Like this poor woman must have had so much fear and anxiety about the future. You have to understand in the first century, it was like, you know, men provided for women. Thank God it doesn't have to be that way today. Sugar mama in the house, she takes good care of me. But I'm just saying, I'm just like in the day, in the day, in the, she makes more than me. Anyway, uh, back in the day, first century, Jewish women did not have a lot of options if they didn't have a husband or a son to care for them. The options that were in front of this woman, like none of them would have been super appealing, like marrying for security or going into a line of work that nobody would want to do or becoming a beggar. Like those were really the only major options in front of her. And so this poor woman is experiencing all of this in this terrible, terrible moment. Now, before we move on, I want to note one more thing. I've kind of already hinted at it, but I just think this is really important, okay? We're told in verse number 11 that Jesus is walking up on this village, and he's got a whole entourage with him. There is a big crowd of people that's following Jesus, and then we're told in verse number 12, coming in the opposite direction is this woman in the funeral procession, and very specifically, it uses the exact same language. She is also followed by a large crowd of people. So we have two large crowds of people that that are about to collide into one another. This is a, a situation that is buzzing with emotion. It is buzzing with uh, activity. There's people everywhere. And in the middle of all of this hubbub and chaos, something incredible happens. Verse number 13, we read, when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said to her. Now, I want you to catch this. This is like kind of interesting if you think about it. In the middle of all of this chaos and crowds, Jesus saw her. The scripture says he saw her. His focus was not on the crowds. It wasn't on his circumstances or her circumstances or anything like that. Specifically, it says he saw her. His attention went to this poor woman with all of her suffering and her grief. And look, this is not just a passing detail, okay? If you read throughout the four gospels, you know what you find? More than 40 times the scripture writers highlight that Jesus saw someone. Jesus saw some. So the scriptures say, Jesus saw them. Jesus saw her. Jesus saw him. 40 times we're told that, which is kind of funny because like everywhere Jesus went, he was followed by large crowds of people. Everywhere his eyes would have looked throughout the day, he would have saw people. 
But when the scriptures are saying he saw them, it's not just that his eyes saw that there was a a sea of nameless and faceless people around him. No, it's highlighting the fact that he sees the individual. He sees the people, not just this faceless crowd. He sees the needs that they have. He sees the pain and the heartache and the baggage that they're carrying around. Somebody said one time, and I think this is really great. I try to remember this as a pastor to the very best of my ability. Jesus seemed to love people more than he loved crowds. In fact, there are lots of times where the Bible says Jesus withdrew from the crowds. He tried to get away. He's like, guys, I need a break. I need to go pray or I need to talk to my people or whatever it might be, right? And so Jesus, in the middle of this huge throng of people, he saw her. He saw them. Oh, man. I'm not very good at this, if I'm honest, okay? Uh, I, I see all kinds of stuff, but I don't really notice very much. Like, there are times Amber and I will go to dinner at somebody's house. You know, a church member will invite us over or something like that. We'll go have dinner. We get in the car. We're on our ride home. And she's like, did you notice those cool plates that they served supper on? And I'm like, I didn't notice there were plates. I just don't even, it doesn't even, I see stuff, but I don't always notice very much, Okay. Jesus definitely noticed. It's one thing to see. It's one thing to let your eyes fall on, but it's another thing to take note of. And everywhere Jesus went, he saw people. He saw people. Can I tell you, if you're suffering this morning, God sees your pain. He sees your pain. It can be tempting to think that you're alone in the middle of your difficulty. It can be tempting to sit in a dark room with a couple hundred other people and you're like, I'm just a face in the crowd. Nobody knows. Nobody has any clue. Nobody sees. They're all smiling. I don't feel like smiling today. After Easter, we had a a church member invite one of their friends or family member to church. And after they were on their way home, they said, so what did you think? And they were like, Everybody smiles a lot there. Like, are they really that happy or is it fake? Yeah, some of it's fake, all right? This is how it is, all right? You might be here and you're like, I can't, I can't even fake it today. I can't even fake it. Uh, what I'm carrying, what I'm dealing with, what I have, it's like nobody understands. Nobody could possibly relate to what I'm going through. God sees your pain. He does. This woman was surrounded by people, right? She had her dearest friends and family. I'm certain they were all there with her, a part of that funeral procession. I'm sure they baked her casseroles and they promised they were going to be there forever, you know, all these different things. But in truth, my guess is nobody could have understood what this woman was really going through. To lose your husband and your only son within a couple of years, maybe even a couple of months, who could possibly see what you're going through in a circumstance like that. Jesus saw her. He was able to see what nobody else in the crowd was able to see. And hear me now, God sees your suffering every bit as much as he saw this widow's suffering in Luke chapter number 11. He is not unaware or indifferent to our difficulties in life. Psalm 56, 8 is a really beautiful, poetic kind of passage. It's one that I think you should make note of. Come back to this periodically. Uh, Simone, our worship pastor, she tends to quote this verse a lot, like in her prayers and things like that. Uh, It's just a good one. Look at at what this says. Uh, The psalmist, speaking to God, says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. 
Man, there is great power from knowing uh, that comes from knowing that God sees our sorrow and suffering. Like, this is a powerful verse if you really think about it. Now, I, I don't know how literally to take this. I don't know if there's like, you know, a rack in heaven and God's got like bottles filled with the tears of the saints. I, I think this is probably poetic and symbolic and all that sort of stuff. But like literally every heartache and wound that you've ever gone through, God knows it fully and completely. Every tear you've ever cried, God was right there alongside you as you shed those tears. That's so so encouraging. But Jesus doesn't just stop there, okay, with seeing the pain. He goes a step further. We read there in verse number 13. Let's put that back on the screen. Verse number 13, there's this really interesting phrase that says, when the Lord saw her, when Jesus saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. His heart overflowed with compassion. That's really pretty language, isn't it? It's like, oh, that's he just saw her and his heart overflowed. I'm just picturing like flowers and warm fuzzies and Jesus, he saw her. This is really pretty language in English, but in Greek, this is ugly and raw. In English, this is translated using three or four words. In the original language, this is one Greek word and the Greek word is splonkna. Splonkna. When the Lord saw her, splonknon. Turn to your neighbor and say, splonknon. Somebody just got spit on. Sorry about that. You can't say splonknon without spitting. Okay. That word kind of reminds me of the sound you make when you put your finger down your throat. You're like, splonknon. It's just like, ah. Okay. That's accurate. Because the Greek word splonknon, it actually means your intestines or your bowels. It means to hurt deeply on the inside. This is actually the strongest word for emotions or pain in the entire Greek language. And that's what Jesus experienced when he saw this woman in her grief. It's a gut punch. It took his breath away and left him in agony. Oh, not only does God see your pain, God feels your pain. Do you realize that? God feels the pain that you feel. See, in this story, Jesus didn't just hurt for her. Jesus hurt with her. Like, uh, if you lost your, your husband and your only son, it would be no. I mean, that's it. That's all there would be. There's probably not even an English word that would do it justice. And that's precisely what Jesus himself experienced as he saw her. Do you know, this is one of the beliefs that makes Christianity unique and beautiful. It really is. This is one of the things that separates our faith from other belief systems around the world. We believe that God can experience our suffering, that God actually suffers with his creation. Try telling a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Scientologist that God suffers, and they're going to look at you like you're absolutely nuts. How could the all-knowing one? How could the all-powerful one? How could the self-existent creator of the universe who doesn't need anything or anyone, how could he experience suffering? And yet time again from page one all the way through the end of the Bible, we see God experiencing suffering alongside of his creation. In this story, we have Jesus, who is God incarnate, God made flesh, entering into and experiencing this woman's emotions. Her worst day, he was right there 
with her. In fact, this is one of the ways that we know that emotions are not an inherently bad thing, you know? Because emotions are a gift from God. He gave them to us when he created us. And God himself has emotions. We know that they can't be wrong or bad or sinful inherently because God himself experiences them. Again, there are, there are some belief systems out there. They might be religious. They might be secular, whatever. And they tell you either that your emotions should be your soul and real guide in life. You just chase whatever makes you happy and makes you feel good. Then there are others that say your emotions are horrible and no good. And as you get closer to God, you will lose your emotions. That's no good either. We have a God who gave us emotions and he wants us when we feel stuff, when we feel something deeply, whether it's negative or it's positive, we should stop and ask, why am I feeling this way? Because it's there for a reason. Your feelings can fuel your faith. God himself feels and he feels our pain. So you might be here this morning and you're just like, I don't know, man. You guys, like everybody's so happy here and high five and best day ever. But for me, I just, I don't know if anybody sees the weight and depth of my heartache right now. Jesus does. He sees it and he feels it. He understands what you're going through far better than you could ever realize. Okay. Verses 14 and 15. Let's wrap up the story here. Jesus sees her. His heart overflows with compassion. He says, don't cry. Then he walked over to the coffin and he touched it. And the bearer stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Get up, get up, get up. Get up out of that grave. Hey, I was really hoping we were going to do that song this week. I checked. It's like a week or two from now. Anyway, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and he began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Oh man. Once again, we see Jesus drawing near to people who are suffering. He doesn't pull away when life gets hard. When our emotions get real and raw and deep, he's not like, "Woo, you better get it under control. He draws close. Jesus isn't walking along and he sees like what's going on over here. And he's like, ooh, ooh, I feel for her. Lord bless her. And then on about his preaching ministry. He didn't see her and say, hey, have her come over here. Let me talk to her for a minute. He went to her. Jesus fought through the crowds. Jesus pushed aside all the other people who didn't need him in that moment. And he went to the one who did. Oh, that's good. He promises to do the same thing for us. We catch another little detail. The scripture says that he goes over and he touches the coffin. Coffin's kind of a weird translation of this word because when we think of coffin, we think of like an enclosed pine box. That's not how they did things in the first century. So uh, in reality, the pallbearers would have had like a big plank or section of wood. The body would have just been laid on top and they would have been carrying him right out in the open. Jesus walks over. He touches the boy on the coffin. That detail for us is like, well, yeah, of course he's going to heal him. We get it. But for the people there in the moment, they would have been like, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. And here's why. 
In the Jewish religion, if you touch something that is dead, you become ceremonially unclean. It's not sin. It's not like you're a bad person or anything like that. But it means that you have to go through a purification ritual before you're allowed to go home to your family and rejoin life in the community. So everybody that was there at the funeral today, they already knew, oh, I'm ritually unclean. I'm going to have to go do the purification ritual before I get to go home tonight. That just, it comes with the territory as a first century Jew. There are a lot of people in these crowds that would have been standing off to the side and they would have seen all of this, but they would have been hesitant to get too close to it because of what it would cost them because they might not know what to do because it's just easier to stay over here at a distance. Not Jesus. He gets close. He draws near. You know, another thing the psalmist says is that God is near to the brokenhearted. He is near when we hurt, when we suffer. He draws close to us. He doesn't tell us to come to him. He comes to us. Man, Jesus is so good. He comes up and the scripture says, that he touches the boy, raises him back to life. Guys, not only does God see our pain, not only does he feel our pain, amen and amen, God promises that he will heal our pain. In Jesus, every wound can be healed. Every heartbreak can be mended. Every loss can be restored. Every failure you've ever committed can be forgiven. The worst moments in life will bring out the worst emotions in us, but our God is in ever-present help in times of trouble. All it took for this boy to be raised from the dead, all it took for this woman's situation to be completely and totally transformed was one touch from Jesus. Can I tell you, that's all it takes is one touch. That's all it takes is one touch from Jesus and your situation can be totally and completely changed. You may think there's no hope. You may think your circumstance is permanent. You may think there is no way out of this. Can you imagine this poor woman when she got up that morning and she knew she was headed out to have the funeral of her son? Did she have any hope or expectation that she was going to be having dinner with her boy that night? No, of course not. But all it takes is for Jesus to show up in your situation, grant one touch, and the entire circumstances are flipped around. Now, although that's hopeful, there are some of you that are like, that ain't really helpful. And the reason is because there are some of you and you've got, you've got your pain on your shoulder right now. You're carrying it and you're like, we're getting close, God, I need you to show up but there's still some kind of hope for you, right? Then there are others of you, and you're like, dude, I buried my pain a long time ago. It is in the ground, it's covered up, and frankly, I'd like it to stay that way. You're hoping to forget. You're hoping to move on. You're hoping to let the past be the past and let the the dead remain dead, if you're with me. And hear me now, I understand that tension. I really do. For 10 years now, uh, Amber and I have been dealing with infertility. And it's like, Lord, 
My desire was always to have a family, and you've never come through, and people pray for me. And somebody will pull me aside on a Sunday morning, and they'll say, God gave me a word, Pastor Dan, I'm going to pray for you. And they pray for me, and guess what? Still no baby, okay? So I know what it's like to carry around a loss, a grief, a pain, a heartache. I know what it's like to carry it for years. I know what it's like to put it in the ground and say, you know what? It's just easier if I ignore it, easier if I don't think about it, easier if I don't allow myself any hope at all. But we've got to remember that one touch from Jesus can not only heal the sick, not only restore what has been broken, not only return what has been lost, one touch from Jesus has the power to raise the dead to life. There is no circumstance that is completely permanent. There is no loss that cannot be undone. Does that mean that you're going to get grandpa back? No, probably not right now anyway. Does that mean that your marriage is necessarily going to be saved? No, not necessarily, okay? But here's what I like to do. I like to comfort myself not by focusing on my immediate circumstances, but instead I want to take a bigger view. Because if we pull out, if we zoom ahead a little bit in the story, if we go all the way to Revelation chapter number 21, this is the end of the book, people. We go all the way to the end. This is the promise that we read in Revelation 21, 3 to 4. John, the apostle, one of the 12, he gets a vision of heaven. He gets a vision of Jesus. He gets a vision of the end of things, the completion of all of God's plans. He says in verse number three, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All those things are gone forever in the new kingdom. Then the one sitting on the throne said, behold, I am making everything new. I know there is brokenness in this world that seems beyond repair. I know there is loss that doesn't seem like you can ever get beyond it. There is grief that doesn't find healing in this world. But here's the promise that we have. God will intervene in the moment in some of our earthly lives. But as Christians, we have full confidence based on the promises of Scripture that God will heal all of our grief and heartache, that he will wipe away all tears from our eyes, that there will be no more death and sorrow. Can you imagine, what are we even going to do in the new kingdom when 75% of our emotions are gone? It's like the only stuff that's left is the good stuff, the heartache, the hurt, and the pain. It's going to be wiped away by our good God. So I comfort myself with these things. I ask God, God, would you show up? Would you do a miracle? Would you intervene? Would you raise the dead? Would you bring healing? Would you restore relationships? Yes, and I'm gonna keep believing until I die. But if he chooses not to show up in the moment, I'm still confident that in the end, he will make all things new. The hurt and the heartache and the pain that you're feeling today, it is not forever. So at worst... I'm upset about his timeline. 
I, you know, when I get to heaven, I, I don't think I'm going to have any kids in heaven. It's not like he's like, well, you didn't get a baby on earth, so you're going to have a baby in heaven. That's just weird. But in some way, shape, or form, the negative feeling and emotion and grief and loss that I have here on earth, God will do something to fill it. He will do something to bring justice to it. Every wrong will be made right. That's the promise that we have. It's not just the here and now. And hey, I want it here and now, but we're going to get it maybe in the hereafter. That gives me great comfort. As surely, as surely as Jesus intervened in this poor widow's situation, he will intervene, bring healing, hope, and restoration to your story as well. He promises as much. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask you a couple of questions as we get done, wrap up this morning. The first is pretty straightforward, and you're only answering this in your own heart. You don't have to shout it out loud or anything like that. This is just honesty time between you and God. The first question is, what pain are you carrying today? What's the pain? What's the hurt? What's the heartache? What's the loss? What's the struggle? What is it that you're like, no, I don't, even, I don't, I don't want to even think about that again? Or the thing that you're like, that's all I can think about right now. What pain are you carrying? Is it, is it a grief? Is it a loss? Is it the death of a relationship? Is it an unfulfilled dream? Is it a regret that you cannot seem to shake? What pain are you carrying around today? And then the second question is this. What would it look like to trust God fully with that pain? What would it look like to trust God fully with that pain? Could you, could you say, God, I'm not going to leave it buried and hidden. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to try to move past it without dealing with it. Instead, I'm going to bring it to you. And I'm going to say, God, I'm going to keep asking and keep asking and keep asking so that you would intervene for me the way you did for her. That, God, you would provide a miracle and hopefully transform my circumstances in a way that I could never imagine on my own. But regardless... I have full confidence in your goodness. And if I don't have full confidence, I'm asking for your help to have that kind of confidence. God, would you be with me in the middle of my grief? Would you be with me in the middle of my unfulfilled dreams? Would you be with me in my sin and regret? Would you be with me? Uh, would you see me? Would you help me to believe that you know what I'm going through? And that God, one way or another, today or someday, that you're going to bring about a good resolution to my very difficult story. If you could do that, it might change how you see your current and future circumstances. And hey, if there's like one other little thing I could show you, if you're still kind of like, oh, I don't know, can I trust God? Ah, it's tough for me. I understand that. And I try not to draw too many like little parallels and make too many connections. Sometimes, you know, you can get a little crazy with that in the Bible, but maybe the detail that's recorded here in Luke 11 is like something we're supposed to take note of. This woman, the scripture says, lost her one and only son. He died. Like he wasn't just sick, he was dead. And just a few days after that boy died, he was raised back to life. Our Savior says, I am the resurrection yes. 
and the life. He is the one and only Son of the Father. He himself tasted death for us so that we could experience life eternal, life overflowing through him. That is enough to see me through life's deepest and rawest emotions. God, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would bring comfort and strength to every person in the room that is genuinely suffering today. I pray that they would see you and that God, knowing that you are aware and you have a plan and God, not only that, a promise that you can bring a good result out of every situation, God, may that help us to draw close to you and God to strengthen us in the middle of our hard times and hard days. Thank you for this encouragement from your word. Lord, help us to submit and surrender our emotions to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.